You're listening to Leadership Powered by Common Sense with your host, Doug Thorpe. Here's Doug. And with that, folks, we're going to welcome you to another episode of Leadership Powered by Common Sense. I'm Doug Thorpe, your host. And today I'm visiting with Brian Gorman. Brian is a recovering organizational change leader. <laughs> if I'll, uh, I'll, I'll put that on him and, and we'll clean it up in a minute here. But uh, we're, we're going to have a talk about that, that mystery of change. Uh, I certainly run into it with a lot of my clients. They say they want their organization to change. Maybe it's because of a perceived need for response to a market shift or a regulatory shift or a lot of things that might be out there in the dynamic of running a business. But today we're going to lean into the whole challenge that that faces, and we're going to talk a little bit about what leadership may look like in the future. So again, uh, Brian, welcome to the show and thank you for sitting in with us. Tell us a little more about your background, you know, where you came from and, and how you shaped into the focus that you've got now. It's a five decade long plus journey, Doug, so I'll try to make it quick. Um, I actually, it actually began as a freshman at Syracuse University, 1967-68. I went to Syracuse as an introvert and as an Eagle Scout. And I went with a commitment to self that I was going to change my relationship to the world around me. So I volunteered, um, well, I joined a fraternity, first of all, um, because any good introverted Eagle Scout would join a fraternity, right? (laughs) <laughs> sure it fits the job description just fine well the fraternity i joined was uh, alpha phi omega which is the national service fraternity. service organization sure and so i started doing youth work on the onondaga reservation outside of syracuse and at the time the university mascot was a native american which was portrayed at athletic events and, and other events by caucasian fraternity brothers in their hollywood garb of Native American dress pretending to be drunken Indians. And very quickly, I realized that basically this was wrong and and began an effort um, over the next four years, really, to try to get the university to change the mascot, um, to launch a Native American studies program because they were in the heart of uh, the Iroquois uh, territory. And I didn't accomplish anything except to get one uh, undergraduate anthropology course in Native American studies. It took the Onondaga Nation another 10 years to get the university to change the mascot, but in me was this thing that was activated around making change happen. And that's been my catalyst ever since. That has been the thread through my career. You know, I think everyone listening has probably in one form or another said to themselves, change is hard. We hate change. We don't like change in, in all your work and studies. Let's, and this may be just too grand a question, but why do you think the human being doesn't like change? Historically, I was an organizational change management uh, consultant. And one of the things that 
I learned along the way is there is no such thing. Organizations don't change. People change. And whether we're taking Merck through a global transformation or we're taking Doug through a transformation into the next phase of his life, it's the same journey. That is at the, the heart of all of the work that I do is how do I move through whatever is the change I have to make in my life. For many years, it seemed to me that leadership was behind where it needed to be. If you look at a lot of what Peter Drucker was writing, even in the 1990s, if you look at um, Douglas McGregor's Theory X, Theory Y, um, COVID really was the catalyst that led the worker bee, if you will, to say, I'm not going to work or be the way I did anymore. Right. <clears throat> and, and with that, leadership needs to look at their role differently if they are to continue to lead their organization successfully. Change is hard. Um, one of the things we don't talk about a lot with change that makes it hard is even if this is the most incredible change that I can think about in my life, I have to give something up. I have to let go of something that is in order to make something space for what will be. And that letting go is hard. Change requires us to pay attention, to be present. And our human bodies are not made to be present all the time. I mean, we survive because so much of what we do is just driven through our unconscious. Um, that gets in the way when we try to make change. And so we have to shift our consciousness. And, and again, that's hard. We have to look at ourselves and, and question those things that we think are facts of life that aren't. They're fictions that maybe we heard from, from kids in the playground or from our teachers or our parents or our, our religious leaders that, that have guided us to the point where we are, the way we are living our lives now. And we have to call those things into question. All of that is hard. Yeah, I, I, I do think about that aspect of, I call it programming that we get, whether it's in school or the culture around us or the society we've grown up in. And I think we are seeing that manifested on in, in the headline news everywhere. People are speaking out based on whatever programming they've received. And I, for one, believe that's causing a lot of the, the friction that we've got in society right now. And very little of the dialogue is about making it better, but it's about making others adapt to whatever your agenda may be. It's the world according to me. Yeah. <laughs> Well, let's uh, let, let's leave the political stage aside and for another show to do. But let's talk about how this manifests itself in the context of a business, whether it's a large business or a small business. It's certainly my belief that these same dynamics come to play. And, and you said in our intro that organizations don't change; only people change. So I did elaborate on that a little bit. 
Well, I want to tie that to another statement that I often make that sets people back a little bit. Organizational culture does not exist except inside the people of the organization. You might have cultural artifacts like the celebrations, the um, probably not so much anymore, but the coffee room and the what, whatever. But culture itself, how people show up, how they interact with one another, how they relate to clients, how they relate to the organization, how they think about their jobs, how they do their jobs, that exists inside of the, the people of the organization. And so quite frankly, if you're looking to make an organizational change, what you're talking about is reprogramming the neural networks, the muscle memory to at scale of the people in that organization. And that ain't easy. And out on the front end of the food chain, I'll, I'll mention the entrepreneur that has opened the doors on a business. They've got some great idea or product or creation that they want to bring to the world. As soon as they start hiring people, they start laying the bricks and mortar of what their culture is going to be about, whether they properly or effectively hire the right people to contribute with the right values is the big wild card. And I can't tell you how many times I've run into entrepreneurs who have been up and running a couple of years and they realize that for good or bad, they don't have the right people on the team. They need to make a shift. All the coaching and motivational tricks you can pull is not going to change basic values and beliefs that those people bring to work every day. Yeah. No question for me on any of that. Uh, one of, I think, the biggest challenges in growing an organization is the time that it takes to vet the right people. And that's not about the skills. Yes, you need the skills. Skills can be developed. It is about the values. It is about, um, it, it's about passion, quite frankly. You know, how many times have you been asked in a job interview? Has anyone been asked in a job interview? What gets you up and excited about coming to work in the morning? What could be a more important question? If I ask you that, Doug, and what the answer you give me has nothing to do with what I need from you, you might be an okay worker. You're not going to be the person who I can count on to show up, to put his heart and soul into the business every day, to produce his best work, and to stay here because he's finding not just financial, but personal reward from being on the job. And that is a huge challenge for leaders trying to identify that right talent. And I have spoken about this several times before on my show, but I share the experience of, of going through the financial crisis of 2008, 2009, and working with creating an organization to help job seekers. 
But for me, the big takeaway from that experience, and I've got a, a data sampling of about 4,500 candidate profiles to pick from. What I discovered when I analyzed the data, it was easy to draw boundaries around three basic types of people that came to our program. From type one, or maybe call them type A, not, not to leverage that point, but they were the highly motivated. They were just naturally motivated to do well. They were hungry for change. If where they were in the moment was not working, they were willing to seek change and find a new way and, and get to the next level. So that's group one. Group two could, they could embrace the change, but it was going to take a while. They had to, they had to process it. They had to absorb it. They had to think about it, maybe test it a little bit, but eventually they would come around and they would be willing to do something new and different. And then the third group was the chronic habitual, I am who I am. You can't change me. I'm not going to do this. And what we were trying to provide was new ways to find jobs in a bad market. So it was change. We, we totally upended the traditional resume. We totally uh, revamped social media. We, we were doing a lot of things and it was, it was big change for most everyone to embrace. But it was that third group that I would actually have individuals stand up in the middle of our workshops and call us out and say, this is wrong. You can't do a resume this way. And, you know, our answer became, all right, well, how's your way working out for you right now? Why are you still coming to our meeting? You can stop coming when you get a job. <laughs> if I can talk to the, the two ends of that, spectrum and let's start with that third group um, we all know people who at some point in their lives have said i'm done changing i'm staying right where i am um, i know many times it's when people retire that it's okay i'm done i'm here the challenge is the rest of the world is continuing to change so even Though you say you're not changing your relationship with everything from technology, from phones and, and televisions and, and uh, news media, and et cetera, et cetera, your relationship with everything around you is continuing to change. And you have no control over that. So I would really challenge anyone who says, I don't have to change anymore, because you're going to find yourself more and more isolated from. Everything's going on around you. If I jump to the uh, first group that you were talking about, those who really are ready to embrace change. And you said, and if things aren't working out for them, they're ready to go. Um, whenever I'm working with organizational leaders who are looking to make change in their organizations, the warning I give them is this. If you don't, pay attention to the best people, those who are most capable of making change. If you screw this up, 
they may be your best, they may be your brightest, they're also going to be your first out the door because right. they don't have to stick here while you muck around and muck around and muck around with it. I agree. That is most definitely a big challenge that leaders need to be sensitive to. And, and sadly, often what happens when someone comes to work and proves themselves to be one of those tier one players, they get taken for granted. The boss says, I know I can count on them. I don't have to pay any attention. I don't have to worry about that. And even if you're not trying to affect a big material change for your company, just your day-to-day, -day, if you take that for granted, they will be the first out the door. Why? Because they can. Because they can. Many years ago, um, during the time where telco was deregulating, I was working for a change management consulting firm. We had a big telco come to us and they said, we need help. They said, we saw this as an opportunity from going to go from being an elephant in the marketplace to being a Jaguar. We ended up an elephant on Slim Fast. <laughs> we lost our best and brightest because we did not handle this well. And we're stuck with those who are stuck in the past. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, for those that can remember it, the deregulation of telco was what was a big deal. And all the players that were involved in that had to make that kind of self-challenge of how nimble is my business? Because things were changing very fast and very rapidly. And being nimble as a business is potentially a change event in and of itself. Yeah. Yeah. Well, when you typically go to work with a company who is expressing a either a, a need for change or a change initiative that is already underway that they have assessed as not going very well, <laughs> I'm presuming that's a few of your clients from time to time. How do you really engage initially with them? The first thing you need to do is build trust. If we are going to have a successful working relationship, we have to be able to trust one another. We have to really get to know one another deep inside, not just in terms of the skills we bring, but in terms of the people we are again. Um, so it really is, um, I guess let's date before we enter into a relationship here in a way. Um, and then it's really getting to know the, some of the key players in the organization. And when I say that, I'm not talking about who's sitting in the C-suite, who's sitting, you know, at the director level, whatever. It's like, who really has the influence? And those people who really have the influence may or may not have a title that has anything to do with the fact that they have the influence. Um, you know, I many years ago worked in a nonprofit with a couple hundred people and one of the most influential people was deep down in the organization as an administrative assistant. But oh, by the way, 
she was employee number two. And a lot of the decisions along the way had been made with her voice. And even when those in the executive offices were no longer listening to her voice, others in the organization were. She had a lot of influence. So who are the, who are the pl real players in this change? Um, and where are we trying to go? Yeah, I, I, I've seen that play out as well in organizations, and I have spoken about this too. There is clearly in bigger organizations, there's a formal organization chart that, that names everybody and posts their titles and what their positions are about and what the span of control looks like, etc. But there's always an informal organization of where the real work gets done, the real communication happens, and the the ability for a leader to affect change happens, in my humble opinion, by leveraging that informal organization much more so than relying on the formal one to get you there. Leaders have followers. Who has followers? Right, right. And and to your point, the lady that was employee number two in that nonprofit, you know, she she had followers. People knew who she was and, and respected what she had done for the cause. And I'm sure still rallied around. And if there was ever a doubt or a question, she was probably a voice that always bubbled up from the from the bottom of the organization yep. on up. Yeah. Not uncommon to see that happen. Well, what do you think? You you alluded to the pivot with COVID and the catalyst that the whole COVID experience was in the way we work and in the minds of employees at all levels. If, if you dusted off your crystal ball, where are we going with all of this? I don't know. That's that's my short answer, Doug. <laughs> what what I do truly believe, and and I, for lack of a better label, what I know do know, is that we are early in the most significant change in the workplace, the relationship between the worker and the workplace. Uh, since the start of the Industrial Revolution. Um, COVID was a catalyst. Um, coming out of COVID, if you look at the Great Resignation, the forces driving the Great Resignation, um, people saying, there's no meaning in the work I'm doing. I don't want to do this anymore. I don't want to sit in traffic for four hours a day. That's 20 hours a week. I don't want to sit in the office waiting for my boss to go home so they think that I'm dedicated. Um, I don't feel valued by my organization. I have another life besides work that I want to live. All of those factors come into play. And now, oh, by the way, right on top of that, we have this thing called artificial intelligence that nobody can really tell us what that's going to mean for most professions, most jobs. Uh, I was just talking to um, uh, someone who has been 
working in the field since 2007, uh, his prediction is that the first career to go away will be uh, professional drivers. The That within uh, a few decades, it will be illegal for you and I to get behind a wheel and drive a car. Hmm. Um, who knows where all of this going? So, is going. So I don't know where it's going. I do know that that COVID really unleashed a lot of pent up uh, demand for change uh, was was the catalyst for that. And then on top of that with artificial intelligence, I think, Doug, the best I can predict and and um, I, I don't know how much faith I put in the prediction, but the best I can predict is we are heading to some world of work uh, that is the digital digital equivalent of the agrarian age, where work is done anywhere, anytime, as it's needed. Yeah. We are not going back to a, a nine to five. We're not going back to a five day work week. I think that's a pretty fair statement. And in, in respect to just leadership principles, I think one of the immediate casualties of the the COVID catalyst is the old command and control style of leadership. And I have I have spoken about this, I've written about this frequently. There will still be moments where command and control is an appropriate situation. And and the most classic I can point to is if I need heart surgery, I darn well want my surgeon to be in control of everything going on in that OR. So that's that's a that's a fine example of command and control, and that's as it should be for the moment. I I, I, I almost want to challenge you on that. Okay, let's do that. Um, you know, we talk about command and control, and we we tie it to the military. If you go online and do a Google search for commander's intent, um, it's a long-standing principle in the Marines, which we think of as the ultimate in command and control, right? That when you're in the battlefield, no battle plan is going to go according to action, uh, to, to, to plan. No battle is going to go according to battle plan. What's important is what is the intent? Is every person on this team clear about the intent? Is every person in that operating room clear on what this open heart surgery is about for Doug? Because the anesthesiologist or a scrub nurse or someone else can see something going wrong before that surgeon in charge. And they should be able to do what it takes to make it right in the moment. Okay, I, I, I hear you and I, and I do agree. I think that's true. And I will add to that, you are right. I think we traditionally, when we hear the term command and control, we do immediately think about the military, but there's an interesting dynamic and there, there will be plenty of veterans listening to this and they know what I'm getting ready to say. The, the teaching in the military schools about leadership and command 
actually has been based on the principle of servant leadership for much longer than the modern business world has ever embraced it. Amen. And it, it is a principle that the commander is there to serve their troops. Where do you think we got the idea the leader eats last? Yep. That's exactly where it came from. <laughs> and, you know, those I, best leaders in the military exude that kind of servant attitude about their command. And they are not relying on the rank on their collar to get things done. They're relying on the relationships they build with their troops. To get I was done. a basic military training instructor in the Air Force from 1972 to 1976. Now, first of all, I was not your typical military training instructor. I'll concede that right away. Um, I had been drafted out of graduate school, so I uh, had an undergraduate degree. I was not a career military, which was typically um, the the requirement. Um, but my responsibility, as I saw it, was exactly what you're talking about. It was to support every one of those 48 trainees in becoming successful as an airman. And it took getting to know them, not just giving them orders, but getting to know them. How do I work with this um, trainee who has been with us for two days, who's standing there in front of me telling me, I don't work for them, they work for me, because he's refusing to take orders from, from a person of color. How do I work with him? Yeah, I can say, you will work, you will take orders. But at the best we're going to get out of that is compliance. I have to understand where he's coming from, why he's coming from there, and help him see the value of looking at the world a different way. Right. And right. oh, by the way, he and that person of color became incredible team leaders together. Yeah. Yeah. But that's servant leadership. Right. And I, I, th I think the way that ends up playing out is being able to tap into something I call discretionary effort. Everybody walking the face of the earth has at least two modes of operation. You can show up and you can do the bare minimum, your word, compliance. I'm complying with the expectations of my job, so that's my bare minimum. I'm going to punch the clock. I'm going to get my widgets out the door, and when I leave at five or six, whenever I'm done for the day, quote, quote. But the second gear and the more effective gear that leaders should be striving to tap into is this thing I call discretionary, income, uh, discretionary effort. The ability to go the extra mile, give the extra 10, 20, 30% <clears throat> because you're committed, you believe in the effort, you're, you, you really see the good, the greater good that can be accomplished, and, and you're willing to show up and give that extra effort. Amen. And uh, in, in my book, a real leader is able to figure out person by person how to tap into that bank
of willingness to contribute discretionary effort. All the way to the front line. Right. All the way to the front line. Right. How is this job that I have on the front line of this organization contributing to the greater good that this organization is about? An incredible study um, years ago of custodians in a hospital that I think illustrated that story perfectly. Some of them, they did their job. They cleaned the patient rooms. They cleaned the hallways. They clocked in. They worked until it was time to clock out. Others would come in. They'd get their work done. And then they'd go visit the patients who didn't have visitors. Um, the researcher was following one who walked in. And the first thing, every time this custodian walked into a patient room, they would look at the ceiling. And the researcher said, what are you doing? They said, what do you think the patient is looking at all day? They saw their purpose as more than clean rooms. Right. So the leader can tap into that at any level of the organization. And oh, by the way, it's those people on the front lines, those people who interact with your clients, your customers, your patients. They're the ones on which your reputation depends. Right. And as it's often been said, that's where your brand value comes from. And you can spend, if you're the owner of the business or the senior executive of a company, you can spend thousands and thousands, if not millions of dollars, trying to hammer out a statement of what your brand value is and what you aspire it to be. But if your team doesn't live, eat, and breathe what that is, or more importantly, to your point, through their actions, they don't demonstrate daily what it is to be that, you don't have it. It doesn't yeah. matter what you put in the brochure. You don't have that brand. Yep. Plain and simple. Well, I'll tell you what, Brian, we're kind of coming up on time here. This has been fascinating, and I'm sure there's probably more we can get into. But if uh, if folks are interested in getting a hold of you and, and learning a lot more, what is the best way for them to do that? So I am on LinkedIn, of course, Brian Gorman. Um, Brian, B-R-I-A-N, at transforminglives.coach is my email. And my website is transforminglives.coach. Love it. Well, as always, folks, we will have that information in the show notes. And one last time, Brian, thanks for sitting in. It's been a pleasure. Thank you, Doug. I've enjoyed the conversation. Well, with that, everybody, we're going to bring this to an end, but I do want to remind everybody we've got a video version of this over on YouTube, channel by the same name, Leadership Powered by Common Sense. Hop over there, subscribe to the channel. You'll get advanced warnings of new releases. We are dropping shows three times a week, so we've got a lot of content coming at you. We are available on all other streaming platforms, so check us out wherever it's convenient. And last thing, I want to mention that if you or someone you know could be a good guest for our show, drop me a line. Let me know that. My contact info is in the show notes as well. And with that, I'm going to say goodbye. Go out there and make it a great day. 
You've been listening to Leadership Powered by Common Sense, hosted by Doug Thorpe. If you would like to know more about the coaching and advisory services he provides, visit DougThorpe.com.